Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and in this, the hundredth year since he was born, we're going to be talking about the great American poet Robert Lowell, born in 1917, and I'm privileged to be joined by the critic and novelist Jonathan Rabin, who actually knew Lowell. Jonathan, welcome. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I I reviewed Robert Lowell's notebook in November 1970 and was very surprised to get a couple of days later a postcard from, as it turned out, Lowell himself. When the postcard arrived, it was written in small block capitals which looked very strange, and was signed Robert Lowell. And I immediately thought it was probably a hoax by my friend Ian <laughs> Hamilton. Uh, the, the postcard said, you best, you put me in the best company, which actually alluded to the fact that I had compared Notebook with Walt Whitman, I am a man, I contain multitudes, William Carlos Williams in Patterson, and Wallace Stevens, and uh, that was the best possible company bit. But I was so suspicious of the card that I had to ring up Ian at the New Review and accuse him of sending a fake low note to me. I was actually persuaded by the seriousness with which he denied this. So I called the number I was that was on the card, got low, we arranged to have lunch, I think the next day. And it was at a French restaurant on the old Brompton Road, just around the corner from Redcliffe Square, where Lowell and was living in Caroline Blackwood's house, which was an enormous giant this of a house. left his second wife, wasn't it? Elizabeth Hardwick. I mean, there's this sort of yes, chaotic yes. move he'd made over the Atlantic to be in the UK. Absolutely, yes. And I, I got to the restaurant first. A few minutes later, in walked this enormous, shambling man with sort of disheveled grey hair that was swept back, but swept back in a sort of tangled, bardic way. I mean, he looked the part of the great poet. Was he also very tall? I have an impression of him as being enormous. He was tall and he was built like an American football player. I mean, I don't know how much he weighed, but I mean, he was... uh, I don't mean to say in any way fat. I don't think there was an ounce of fat on him. Alan Tate or Randall Jarrell, he dangled out of a window at one point, didn't he? (laughs) Yes. He was a big man. I mean, in every sense of that word. When he walked into the restaurant, which was supposedly French, but was full of Spanish waiters, he sort of dwarfed, to my eye, everybody else in the room. I was 28 at the time and still raw and a novice in London. And he was, oh, 53 it must have been. But he had the grandeur of some sort of visiting bard. When he sat down at the table, after 
But I, I, the most reassuring thing about Robert Lowell was the fact that he summoned a waiter by shouting garçon in an even worse French accent than mine, <laughs> which was, so, you know, it's strangely humanizing that <laughs> I was carrying at that moment a copy of W.D. Snodgrass's second collection of poems, which was after experience. I'd taken it along with me quite deliberately because I knew that Lowell had taught Snodgrass at the Iowa Writers Workshop on the MFA course there. And I knew that uh, it would be useful to talk about Was it Snodgrass, Snodgrass with whom he had that, that thing when he was manic and he started saying, you're, you're the greater poet than me, and handing him pamphlets. Was that Snodgrass's first book? Well, his first book was Heart's Needle. And I don't know about Lowell saying that. I, that's not a story I've heard, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure you may be right. I had to review it for the London magazine. And I was interested if Lowell had read it and what his take on it was. And we proceeded from Snodgrass to Larkin, which was actually rather an easy jump, considering the tone of Snodgrass's poems at that time. We talked about Snodgrass and Larkin, who Lowell had already met, and I think by that stage had, had, had already had to stay at Caroline Blackwood's a country house called Millgate, just outside of Maidstone. Lowell was an, an admirer of Larkin. Larkin, although he was a guest in the house and accepted that invitation, was no admirer of Lowell. He was very rude about Lord Weary's castle in his letters, wasn't he? Called it Lord Harry's arsehole. <laughs> jibber, jibber, jibber. Yes. <laughs> anyway, we went on through lunch talking about, I, I naively asked him about his Catholicism and he said, I'm not a believer now, but I like to read Christ's words. I didn't know that he was no longer a Catholic, but uh, the Catholicism had a, actually been junked years beforehand. But it was all over that early poetry, wasn't it? I mean, it was... Yes, yes, yes. And then we talked about fishing, prompted by my saying how much I liked the poem, The Drunken Fisherman, you know, wallowing in this bloody sty, I cast for fish that please my eye. And Lowell seized on fishing with enormous enthusiasm. And I would say of that enthusiasm that what I didn't know during this lunch was that Lowell was in the early stages of a manic attack. Yes, I mean, it's for, for those listeners who don't know, Lowell was plagued throughout his life by manic depressive disorder episodes, wasn't he? Yeah. One of the things about the sort of slow build-up to an actual fit of mania was how he would become suddenly sort of intimate with bursts of great enthusiasm. And I was, of course, in no position then to 
measure this and understand where it came from, but it made him actually the ideal lunch companion because whatever area of conversation we embarked on, Lowell brought to the conversation this enormous, almost torrential enthusiasm and readiness for completely candid, open intimacy. And I think perhaps if I'd met Lowell when he was saner, it, it would not have been the same and, we, and the lunch would have been the end of it. But the lunch was not the end of it. The lunch went on to five o'clock while we talked about fishing, dolphins, religion, poetry. That dolphins reference, this must have been the time, presumably, that he was writing or, you know, had maybe had finished writing the collection of poems that became the book The Dolphin about leaving his wife for Caroline Blackwood. Exactly, exactly. He was writing The Dolphin. And I was able to uh, tell him that there was a dolphinarium in Oxford Street, I think, sort of not far from Centrepoint. We instantly uh, arranged for me to take him uh, later in the week to the Dolphinarium, which is something that a thought now that, that appalls me, but didn't seem a bad thought then. And also, as we discussed fishing, another appointment was made that we'd go to Hardy's on the corner of Pall Mall and St. James's Street, right next door to Locks the Hatters. Hardy's was, uh, you know, just this wonderful emporium of uh, fishing tackle. And this, this being November, it's, it's rather an odd date for that visit because uh, the trout season wouldn't open till around, I think, April 1st of the next year. But Lowell had to be in possession of a fishing rod and flies and fly box and reel and fly line. And uh, I promised, I, I knew some places in Hampshire where there was day ticket water and we planned fishing trips together. And all this now seems to me manic, though I didn't recognize that at the time. You know, we've we've meant, touched on this this business of Ismania. And I mean, this is maybe a slightly kind of vulgar or hackneyed question, so forgive me, but how much do you think he would have been the poet he was without his personal difficulties, mental health issues. I mean, there's that sort of generation that saw themselves a bit as Maudy, you know, sort of Berem and Lowell, Retke. I mean, it's, it's impossible for me to <laughs> say how he would have been had he not been manic. He said to me once that he wrote in mania and revised in depression. He also said to me at that lunch that he thought the way that his popularity as a poet was because people were able to identify with the difficulties in his life. And that seemed to me absolutely true, except that identifying with Lowell was hard because he was, after all, I mean, he came from the nearest thing that 
America has to an official nobility, the you know the Boston the, the boss. Like, yeah. Here's to dear old Boston, land of the something and the cod, where the cabots talk only to Lowells, and the Lowells talk only to God. <laughs> So he was at the tail end of a long family line of people like the president of Harvard and all of that kind of thing, and Amy Lowell, the poet who had made a considerable stir for herself. James Russell further in the background as well, isn't there? Yes, exactly. You know, it's hard for people to exactly identify with Lowell's difficulties, simply because most of us are not Boston aristocracy. And Lowell's life was itself, had itself a kind of grandeur, which was pretty inaccessible to the lives of so many of the people who actually buy and read poetry. Lowell was probably the chief living celebrity poet. He lived to be compared to Eliot, Borden, Yeats. I mean, he was he was up there, you know, he was in the firmament. Well, I wonder how you think about it since then, but has his reputation, as it seems to me, slightly sort of faltered? I mean, Elizabeth Bishop's certainly a bull market and Lowell's just seems to have fallen behind a bit, or it's changed his reputation, do you think? Yes. I always put it down to there was something by that stage foggy about Lowell. His voice showed it, and I think his poetry showed it too. And I assumed that this was the effect of years of lithium and of being drugged one way or, way or another. But at the same time, you know, although Elizabeth Bishop, she was appalled by the poems in Felizzi and Harriet, you know, in which Lowell appropriated Lizzie's letters and turned them into poems, which was <laughs> not really something anybody should do to their ex-wife. Did you feel the same way when she when she took that side, when, when the Dolphin and Felizzi and Harriet came out? Did you think this actually, in Bishop's words, art isn't worth that much? By the time I was actually living in the Lowell's house in Red, Redcliffe Square, they gave me a two-floor flat in the basement and the ground floor, rent-free, because Caroline insisted that she was so disgustingly rich as the Guinness heiress that my rent wouldn't make a whit of difference to her one way or another and just refused to accept me as a rent pair. Uh, so I, I, I moved in. And while I was living in the house, Lowell was terribly torn about publishing both The Dolphin and Felizzi and Harriet. And I'm afraid I, as a cynical 28-year-old sort of encouraged him on the grounds that uh, art conquers all and these poems really should be published. But 
I now think that uh, Elizabeth Bishop was in fact exactly right and I was totally wrong. Can I ask you, Jonathan, what you think is to you the enduringly great stuff in Lowell? For the Union dead, the, and I would say the, the whole, the, the collection of for the Union dead is his sort of maximal achievement. I do, do see his work falling into periods with a general loosening up around the end, which very often produced rather slack poems. But even at the end, I mean, he was being reviewed as America's greatest poet. And if I may, I want to talk about Lowell after his death. Ian Hamilton wrote the the first biography of Lowell. And Ian was a very great friend of mine, whom I greatly admired. And I lobbied Caroline Blackwood to take Ian on as Lowell's official biographer, because I believed at the time, wrongly again, that Ian was uniquely qualified for the job, because he was a very sharp and imaginative critic of poetry and a poet himself who had also been married to a manic depressive for a long time. I mean, they started they started in Oxford, where she was, I think, an au pair girl. And Ian's experience of mania was heartbreaking. And his accounts of sort of walking from their flat in uh, Westbourne Grove, I think, to Paddington to find his wife on the railway lines about to try and top herself under a train. Hideous to to think about. Uh, But I thought this experience would have given Ian sympathy with Lowell and an ability to not put the manic attacks at the center of the book. Ian, in fact, treated the manic attacks with a kind of ironic distance and set them up as the adventures of Robert Lowell and how he was when he was manic and his propositions always to a girl half his age or less than half his age wandering around uh, in bare feet bleeding feet in imitation of Christ and all the rest of it. I think it's always hard, you know, when when a famous writer dies at the height of his reputation, and that was very much low in the 1970s, you know, there's always a revaluation to be made, and their reputation tends to fall. Ian and I had a year-long period of non-speakers after I reviewed the book for Kaleidoscope on Radio 4, in which I quoted Caroline Lowell, who said that reading Ian's book, you'd never think 
how anybody could love him. And actually, so many people did love him that it was a deep injustice that he'd, he'd done to Lowell. And I felt that was true. Though Ian continued to be my friend from approximately one year after the book appeared for the rest of his life, he still seems to me a vast figure, someone who towers over the other poets of his time. And I feel very lucky to have met him. I'm going to have to sort of stop you there, but say thank you so much. Not at all.